that Americans should care about the G7 because it is really the start of international policy. And what we all tend to not fully realize sometimes is that international policy will often influence some of our national government and state policy, which ends up developing into regulations that will impact our communities, our businesses, and our families. If we do not care from the start, then our say in what happens to us is diminished and we let the people who do care rule. I think every American should care about what is going on at the G7 because the G7 will have an impact on every American's future. You are listening to What in the World right here on WERALP Arlington, Virginia. I am your host, Umiya Kinesosu, and today I have the honor and privilege of presenting to you all two awesome individuals who accomplished some pretty cool things over the over the last couple of weeks. They are Sydney Hulabak and Ryan McGee. Um, they are two of the four USY7 Summit youth representatives. And they were out in Ottawa, Canada, negotiating on some pretty hefty policy issues. But we're going to get into what the Y7 means, what Ryan and what Anne did out in Canada. Uh, before we jump into that, a lot of people don't know what the G7 is. And, and for our listeners, we've talked about a lot of different multilateral organizations and treaties and all sorts of agreements that are out there that the United States or institutions that the United States is a member of. And one of them is the G7, which which Sydney is going to talk to us about. But essentially, the Y7 is an affinity group of the G7 nations. And in June, on June 8th and 9th, the G7 countries will be meeting in Canada to discuss some pretty hefty issues. And these two and the other two, Anne Love and Michael Fox were part of the U.S. delegation and represented youth voices. So thank you both, uh, Ryan and Sydney, for being here and just explaining what the G7 is about, what the Y7 is about, and your experiences at the Y7 Summit. Of course. Thank you for having us. No problem. Um, You know, uh, what I do with every show is talk to people about how they got to the space that they're in with foreign policy and both of you have unique backgrounds professionally and personally. So Sydney, let's start with you. Congratulations, Sydney. She just graduated from Johns Hopkins (laughs) University. Yay! (laughs) She took my to my last final yesterday. (laughs) It's real fresh. Yes. (laughs) So now you can party all week. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so Sydney concentrated in international economics and Latin American studies. So Sydney and she's originally from Huntsville, Alabama. Alabama. You are the first on the show to be from Huntsville, <laughs> oh, Alabama. Proud to represent. Hold it down. <laughs> Tell us how or how you got from Huntsville to to Johns Hopkins and what in your life personally has led you to this space. So yeah, I I grew up in in Huntsville, Alabama, born and raised, went to school just outside of Atlanta, Georgia, a very small liberal arts school called Berry College, home to 2000 students. Not the biggest, but oddly enough, the world's largest campus. Oh, really? Um, yes. So a little little nugget of trivia there. Okay. All right. <laughs> Barry College. Barry Sh- College. Shout out to them. 
And and it really, I would say, my interest in getting here to, to D.C. and also working in the foreign policy space started there. Um, so Barry has this incredible mission to lead everything with service learning. And so from our very first week in classes, or we did a, a, a whole service day with all the first year students, went out into the community and served. And it really started a trigger in my mind in which I realized that I wanted to serve something bigger than myself. And so I studied communications and public relations and undergrad with the intent to go into nonprofit leadership of some sort. And it wasn't until I met my best friend in undergrad who started a, a nonprofit in Uganda that's called the African Soup. And they work with um, an educational initiative there, really working to revamp and reinvigorate the, the educational curriculums and systems across uh, the country of Uganda. And working with that organization, having the opportunity to see it launch and see it thrive really made me interested in global perspectives. And so I wound up deciding to, to come to SICE um, and study international relations and really wanted to get a different emerging market perspective that I thought would be relevant in policymaking and decided on Latin America. It had always intrigued me as a region. I'd never had the opportunity to visit. Um, actually, until last month, I was able to go to Argentina for the first time. But really, that journey, I would say, had its incubation phase at Barry mm-hmm. um, with that service-driven mindset and has really blossomed into this great love for, for foreign policymaking. And so do, are your parents involved in foreign policy in any way or any military? That's sort of been a theme for a lot of our guests is many of them have a military family or um, their parents were scientists or ambassadors. And so they got a chance to sort of get an early introduction to to the world. Was that your story as well? or No. So so my, my mom works for um, Department of Defense in a sense. She works for Redstone Arsenal in Alabama. So always been surrounded by a lot of military presence. Um and then my dad was an entrepreneur, so he had definitely encouraged that side of my of myself. They just instilled this great love of travel in us from mm-hmm. a young age. Um, I was very lucky that they never took a trip once we were born, just the two of them, regardless of whether it was to the beach, um, to a city a couple hours away, or across the ocean. We were right there with them, so I, I credit a lot of that to they never just they never took a true vacation <laughs> when we were growing up, and so even I was on my first plane at eight years old visiting D.C. My mom used to have to come here for business a lot and always dragged us along. So I think because they wanted to instill those values in us to understand the world and build this greater empathy, I was able to start to to see those global connections from a young age. Yeah. And Ryan, my fellow New Englander. Yeah. From from Sharon, Massachusetts. Springfield. Springfield, Springfield originally. Yeah. From Springfield. Home originally. of basketball. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Exactly. Ryan is a writer and a communications professional. He currently serves as the communications director for Massachusetts Senator uh, Eric Lesser. So he's our our Hill guy. He can give us all the Hill secrets. But he's a freelance policy reporter for the Washington Diplomat. And so, Ryan, tell us what got you to this world of of foreign policy and and international affairs? I consider myself as someone who comes from uh, something of a multicultural family. My mom's grandparents were all direct immigrants, uh, so we're not too far removed from that history. And then my dad is a direct immigrant uh, himself from Egypt. Um, And growing up, my parents always had the news on all the time. So we were always following the news of the day together. That, I think, contributed 
a lot to me studying political science in college. And uh, from there, a really formative experience for me was studying abroad my junior year in London. Um, I was there the whole my whole junior year, traveled quite a bit around Europe, and even went on, on an interfaith trip to the Holy Land. So all, the, all of these experiences kind of just opened the world to me, along with the, what I was studying at the time, which was the history of the Cold War, mm. um, the history of nationalism. So those those issues just really became top of mind. Yeah, but I'm eager to hear your take on the G7 and 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 your experiences there and what role you think uh, there is or the impact that this group can have on on American lives. So let's let's start there. And so Sydney uh, was selected to be what's called the head delegate of the Y7. And Sydney's going to explain, you know, what that actually means and what what that experience was like for her. Again, the G7 summit takes place, actually takes place in in a few weeks. And the Young Professionals and Foreign Policy is a nonprofit organization headquartered in Washington, D.C. that seeks to build, amplify and engage the next generation of young professionals. And so we are the organization or that selects the the four delegates and Sydney being the head delegate and tell us what exactly the G7 is there may be people who just have no clue of course <laughs> Sydney what is the G7 so the group of seven or G7 is an informal block of industrialized democracies so in particular it's Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the United Kingdom, and of course the U.S. And they meet annually to discuss issues like global economic uh, governance, international security, and energy policy. And um, actually the EU has been an observing member since 1981. And the G- uh, G7 was actually initially formed in 1975 as the G6. And it was really to provide a venue for non-communist powers to address these the pressing economic concerns of the day. Mm -hmm. Um, So a lot of this was around inflation, around the recession following um, the OPEC oil embargo. And it's just since developed um, the member country that leads the G7 each year that has the presidency. It circulates throughout the members. And they're really able to set an agenda that they think is most vital, most important to discuss amongst the leaders of these countries, of these high GDP countries each year. And then really the hope is to take away those um, those final communiques and really bring policies, tangible policies back to their countries and implement them. And, implement, and talk about the communiques a little bit. What what exactly is the communique? Is it a, is it legally binding? Is it what is the actual communique? So it's more it's more of a an agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not legally binding. There's no um, enforceable element of it. So when countries return, they are implemented back into the. Um, into the divisions of the government that has the most oversight over the specific issues. Mm-hmm. So it changes from year to year depending on the topics at hand. Um, but that is a, that's been a criticism over the years is that there is no enforceable piece of this. It's an informal meeting. And so it is whatever the leaders make it to be. But it's also the privilege, I think, of it being informal is that it allows some of these conversations to happen that may not take place in other settings right. that do have that binding element. And so it really allows countries to be creative and to think about issues that they, as the G7, can tackle and hopefully bring about some sort of change. Right. And what I find interesting about the G7 is there are sub 
groups or affinity mm. groups. So like we have the Y7, there's the B7 for the businesses and there's there's so many sevens. Yeah. And and obviously you all are, are the Y7. I want to also just circle back to something you mentioned about mm. the criticism yeah. of of the G7. So um, as Sydney mentioned, these are industrialized countries getting together to loosely agree on various issues that impact not just their own countries, but other countries. So, Ryan, I'm wondering if you could sort of bring us up to speed on some of maybe the criticisms or some things that you think are are um, a weakness of the of the G7 countries. Sure. I mean, definitely inclusion is a concern with a group this small. Um, uh, You know, the the G20 also takes place, which is a much broader, more diverse uh, group of countries, uh, and that happens every year as well. But um, criticisms are interesting uh, of the G7 because it is difficult to get uh, groups of countries that agree on so much in one room and come out with tangible policy outcomes. Uh, Russia, for instance, it used to be the G8, and Russia was kicked out in 2014 uh, because of its aggression in the Ukraine, uh, specifically in Crimea. It, it is difficult to uh, to find so many countries that agree on, on so much. That being said, I mean, certainly the impacts that our countries have on developing nations uh, is something we should be conscious of. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there, there are organizations, of course, that that also assist those countries specifically from the World Bank to the IMF. And those, again, have their own criticisms uh, that are lobbed at them. And I, I guess just one final point I would make, too, is that uh, there's there's often kind of these conspiracy theories about, you know, what the G7 is deciding behind closed doors. And I think it's important to remember, as Sydney pointed out, that the, the decisions, quote unquote, that we come to at the G7 are not necessarily legally binding, uh, but they are a way for some of the world's leaders, namely the U.S., um, which is the global leader, to really take a stand on some important issues and say this is where the world needs to be going. Yeah. yeah. And, and you know, what are some of those issues? I mean, we can guess, but uh, <laughs> a lot's been happening uh, these last several weeks with the uh, withdrawal of the United States from the, the Iran nuclear deal. Um, we've been pulling out of a lot of things. So, Sydney, talk to us just about what is our posture? What is the United States's sort of um, posture been on or will it be coming up in a, in a few weeks here for the G7? Sure. So on a lot of issues, there's definitely been talk about that there's still consensus. But I definitely think that there has been a pivot from the U.S. The US angle under Trump and that it's especially around the issues of, of trade and open markets, as well as um, on climate and pulling out potentially from the, the Paris Climate Agreement, um, that really some of those key issues that have shaped a lot of these discussions from years past are, are starting to, to see some disagreement among the G7 countries. Um, and just to build a bit off, off what Ryan said as well, I know another big criticism is that one of the world's biggest emerging players, the emergent player China, is not a part of the G7, and that how can it really say that it's holding any clout with some of these decisions? when China's not involved. Um, and whether that's from an admissions standpoint or um, from some of these other critical issues around the environment and climate change, not having some of these voices from um, 
the the BRICS company countries, for example. What are the, um, BRIC, what are the BRIC countries? In so, case people don't know what that is, what are the BRICS? So it is uh, Brazil, um, India. You're putting my 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 yeah, degrees yeah. to the test right here. <laughs> you got that, you got the China, <laughs> um, South Africa. Who am I missing? Who's Russia. Russia. Thank you. Yep. Yep. Yeah, yeah, they're yeah. going to rescind my degree right now. No, I can. never. You, I'm sure you paid a pretty penny for <laughs> that true. degree. So That's true. not knowing the bricks, I promise you, is <laughs> not a problem. But you did a great job. No, you're, you're right in that there's definitely a huge swath of countries who are significant in our international economy who who aren't at the table. And I know that's been something that's been in the news, uh, particularly with Russia, um, um, not having a seat at the table. And I, I think you mentioned, is it 2014 that they were... Uh, let go. Yes. <laughs> yeah. They were suspended, they were I believe. Fired. Yeah. <laughs> right. From the right. from the from the G seven. Yeah, in terms of, of the US posture going into the G seven, um you know, it's it's no secret that there are disagreements in the group and I think it's fair to say that friends can disagree. Um this is one thing interestingly that came up at the Y seven that um I had, you know, kind of one on one conversations with delegates from um various European countries um, that were a little kind of taken aback with where the U.S. is right now. Um, but I, as I pointed out to them, uh, the whole you know post-war architecture that we've built around trade and security um, from the G7 to NATO, um, all of these things uh, would not exist without U.S. leadership and without the U.S. making the choice to say that these are in our interests. Um, and I think uh, all these countries still look to the U.S. for leadership. Right. Right. Well, it's interesting, too, because the the framing that the current administration um, has set forth is that America is first or America is first. Right. And we don't or we don't accept instructions from anybody. Right. And so it is a tough balance, I think, for a country to figure out what it's um, it's global posture will be and its global participation will be considering, you know, groups like the G7, as you mentioned, NATO and NAFTA and the Paris Agreement and the UN, all of these, right, we're a part of these, this web of of these international institutions, as you rightly said, Ryan, that we in part created or we actually did create. Um, But then we also want to like balance our needs at home, which I think for many Americans is black and white. Many Americans feel like we should just be at home, taking care of home and things that matter at home. Um, And others believe that others see the sort of interconnectedness, right, of the domestic and the international. So I don't know if any of that came up um, in your conversations while you were at the Y7 or. Absolutely. I I think going and being a part of something like the Y7 really underscores, as you mentioned, the value of these international conversations. And I think the great opportunity that Ryan and I and as well as Mike and Anne had was to share experiences from our particular country and to see how similar those experiences are across different countries. Mm -hmm. And that even though we might have had kind of a disruption of a moment in certain ways here, um, you know, there's also Brexit and there's also elections in other countries that have been quite surprising to people um, from other parts of the world. And I think in sitting down and discussing that we still share some of these key ideals and that we were still able to reach agreements in just a few short days. I mean, it it really gives you such a great appreciation for what comes out of these summits because you're wondering how do you tackle such monumentous challenges 
in in conversations that last a matter of hours. Right. And it's quite impressive. I mean, just to get a taste of yeah, what that's of like, what that's it gives like. you such great respect. Yeah. So let's let's talk a little bit more about your experiences um, at the Y7. Again, um, Sydney was the head delegate um, and leading our, our team of four uh, to do just that, to negotiate, to talk through these very tough ch- uh, policy issues, which... I'm sure go very, 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 very deep um, and wide. Um, and so the three issue areas were uh, gender equality, climate change, and the future of work. And so Sydney, tell us a little bit first about your role as the head delegate. What was your job? And and actually, is that similar to sort of what the G7, um, the, the G7 has a Sherpa. Sure. <laughs> so maybe you can actually start there. Let's explain what, a, what the G7 Sherpa is and then talk about your role as the head delegate of the Y7. Sure. So the G7 Sherpa and Sherpas for many of these types of summits, they have the responsibility of really kind of laying the groundwork. They are part of the initial conversations that set the stage for ultimately what the leader of the country, um, in this case Trump, will discuss when he attends the actual um, G7 summit. So they have an assistant called the Yak, um, <laughs> which is all just fun terminology. All people, the fun, yeah. When you explain it to people that are not involved in foreign policy circles, they think you have lost your mind. Right, because you're talking about terms. a Sherpa and a Yak. Yeah, we're not hiking Everest. But, <laughs> you know, some of the issues are, you know, they're, they're challenges. So I think that's probably the root of some of these terms. Um, but yeah, so they really they engage with these um, in these different consultations with ministers of different countries and are able really to determine in some of these early negotiations what those talking points will be shaping agendas um, really based on that member country's direction. Right. Um, so my role as head delegate, I think, uh, mirrored that in a sense and that I got to have a taste of all the different conversations taking place. It was a really lucky position to be in. And I think that being a part of, of so many really incredible conversations around topics that are so critical for this time. Um, I was really, really privileged to be able to sit in those rooms. And then ultimately at the end of the summit, um, we also had the toughest job of determining what to highlight of these incredible policies that were put forth by um, over 30 delegates from across the G7 countries in the European Union. We then had to amplify one um, from each subject area. And so, Oddly enough, we reached a a pretty quick consensus, which, (laughs) you know, I I think um, says a lot about the future of of international diplomacy. Yes, yes. Keep your meetings short and simple. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. And have Sydney as the head delegate. No, it was was not my doing. It was a really fantastic group of of other head delegates as well. And and we really entered into these discussions under this this platform that the Canadian delegation had put forth, the hosting country, that we wanted to be audacious and bold in our recommendations. But we also wanted to be practical because at the end of the day, our goal is that the G7 Sherpa and ultimately – Trump will implement some of these policies back home. Yeah. And and so we really had to straddle this interesting line to your point earlier of how to have these really ambitious goals globally but that also satisfy concerns on the domestic front. And I think we were hopefully able to strike that balance. Yeah. Let's talk about that balance starting um, with you Ryan. So you were the sort of lead on the future of work 
uh, topic. And for people who uh, may not be familiar with this concept, but the future of work topic has been bursting at the seams, it seems like lately. Everybody's focused on um, things like artificial intelligence and the role of technology in taking away jobs and the skills gap and our, our youth uh, being educated uh, in a way that prepares them for career success around the globe. I saw an interesting stat that McKinsey um, put out on a study that they did that said that 75 million youth around the world are unemployed and the vast majority of them are are women. And so when we think about the future of work, I think the youth are definitely an important part of that. So Ryan, tell us what sort of topics came up in your discussion yeah. with your colleagues uh, and what were some of the pain points in those sure. conversations? Yeah, it's it's an interesting conversation to have because um, our goal and our task really was to uh, embrace the opportunities provided by the future of work while still protecting workers, still protecting data privacy. So along those lines, um, in terms of education, one thing we're seeing is that uh, the focus of education in the future needs to change a little bit. Yes, current workers need to be quote unquote upskilled and learn new skills for the, the future jobs. But at the same time, the way we're teaching young people now needs to change slightly. Employers are looking for critical thinking skills, creativity. Um, curiosity. Curiosity. And there's there's also um, a lot of creative kind of hybrid programs that are happening. I In my research preparing for the Y7, I found a really interesting education program in Sweden where they're now teaching young people um, digital literacy and uh, learning how to check their sources and le learning to distinguish fake news. Uh, <laughs> an important skill to have. Which yes. is an important skill going into the future. Um, there's also, you know, questions around future of kind of life, life work balance. Uh, the, the gig economy, such as driving Ubers or, uh, you know, doing tasks on TaskRabbit can provide a, a living for people but it doesn't provide the kind of pensions and social right. security safety net right. that we've had for many years. So these are concerns that were really our focus in this group. And I think what's interesting, too, I don't know if this came up in your discussion, but, you know, this is the student loan generation, right? Um, I think about this a lot as someone who has a lot of student loans. I'm sure both of you can relate here, here <laughs> to student loans. Yeah. And, and, and when you think about the trajectory of our parents um, who maybe worked in one job for, you know, decades and decades and decades, they had the stability, right? And they had the income stability, be able to pay off debt, to purchase a home, to send their kids off to college and so on and so forth. But then you have this generation like us who are moving jobs every two to three years we're taking pay cuts we're, we've got side jobs we've got side hustles as we, we call them <laughs> or gigs uh and and you've got this debt right that seems like it's never going to go away and so i think one of the things that's interesting about the future or one of the the concerns that i have about the future of work is um as 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 people, as this generation moves from job to job, how can we ensure that they're able to pay off their debt, 
right? And and a, enable them to be able to do things like purchase a home or start a business or travel the world, um, right? It's almost like you become enslaved to your your gig in order to pay down your your debt. But I don't know if any of sort of those conversations came up in your in your group. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of our proposals, which is not the main uh, b- policy proposal in the call to action, but is included in our uh, index of further proposals, is a type of personal savings account that would be started for every citizen at birth and could be used for various types of things uh, from you know reskilling, going back to school, to starting a new business if you're an entrepreneur and want to take that route. So there's a host of things that could be supported uh, with this type of account that would be a joint uh, personal you know, savings input plus some government support. So that's something we endorsed uh, as, as a, a way to fill that gap. To fill the yeah. gap, yeah, yeah, for sure. Your call to action, the call to action, you mentioned, um, Ryan, the data privacy. For a lot of people, that the two pieces don't connect. Data privacy yeah. and the future of work. Can you connect the dots? Like what was first of all, what did you all recommend to to the G7 as an action that the youth would like to see? And what is the connection to the future of work? What what, what did you all come up with? <laughs> so yeah, our top recommendation on the future of work was for the G7 leaders or G7 countries to enshrine data privacy as a human right. It may not sound on its face like it's directly tied to the future of work, but uh, our thinking was, as as the youth, we don't necessarily need to tell our leaders that we need retraining programs and we need to think about workers, our workers' retirement. Yes, we need to think about those things, but those aren't things that are necessarily being ignored or not being discussed. So we really wanted to present something bold and provide something that would give more of a framework for how we approach the future of work. And enshrining data privacy as a human right actually has a lot of implications for how we approach that. One of the things inherent in, in making data privacy a right is uh, recognizing that humans are the owners of the data that's being protected. Uh, so when it comes to what you're creating, uh, you know, if individuals or companies are creating AI or uh, algorithms or any sort of you know future technology that goes on to create other products, there needs to be a clear link between um, that future product and the owner of the original idea, um, and and how that idea goes on to make profit for either an individual or a company. So kind of like Facebook, right? That's like the one that's big in the news is is what Facebook is doing to or how Facebook is using our data um, to then pass on to other companies who then might be using that data to build an app, for example, right. or create an ad or something like that. Is that sort of the, the, the connection or uh, is that an, an example of what you're talking about? I think that's one way to look at it. Um, a, another idea, which is uh, a, a little bit tongue in cheek, but I saw an, an article in Quartz about uh, that the headline was if if AI creates a work of art, who owns it? And I think um, 
it, it may, you know, it, it's a little fanciful to think of a robot, you know, defending its uh, <laughs> intellectual property or copyright in a court of law. But it is an idea that we will someday have to grapple with. Mm. And I think, you know, working back from that potential future, uh, kind of reverse engineering how we deal with that is looking at who we give the rights to right now in terms of the data and who owns it. And so there are other countries who see this different. Well, we see it differently, meaning the United States sort of sees this data privacy as a value and other countries see it as a right. So what are you what is the actual difference in, in terms of a right versus the value? Because I, I I'm struggling. I was reading through it. And I'm, I'm struggling just understanding what the fight is about. To me, it seems pretty simple that like if like. If like my data is my data, what's in my computer, what's in my email, what's on Facebook is is mine because it's from me. But I guess others see it otherwise. <laughs> I'm not really sure why. <laughs> yes, yeah, certainly uh, our European allies are much more bullish on on going out and calling data uh, privacy a human right. Um, we have concerns in the U.S., um, about the companies that use that data. Um, so we have, for instance, Facebook and Twitter, uh, you know, based in Silicon Valley and Google and all these companies that contribute quite a lot to the U.S. economy. And they disagree to an extent with just completely, you know, handing over um, that, that kind of a, a profit structure. And it, I mean, it is, it is interesting to think about because, you know, when we're interacting online on these apps, uh, we are interacting in the public domain. Um, and, you know, Facebook and Google and these companies have figured out a way to make money off of ad revenue based on uh, what we're doing online. Um, but at the same time, I would I would just say that just, just because we're doing things online does not make them different from what we've always done. Uh, people kind of like get confused, like we're in this whole new brave new world. Uh, when in fact, you know, if we send a piece of mail to somebody and it goes into their mailbox, that's no different than sending an email or sending a, a message on Facebook Messenger. Right. Um, and that, uh, sending a piece of mail is protected communications. You can't mm. open my mailbox and right. look at my mail. That's right. illegal. <laughs> um, and so there there needs to be some equivalent and, and some uh, kind of comparison uh, to our online communication. And I appreciate the fact that you that you all recognize that things like job training and upskilling and all of those, those things are already being worked on. So let's find something that we can actually move the needle on and hopefully we'll see come uh, yeah. early June what the G7 um, comes up with around, around data privacy. So Sydney um, had a chance to sit in on some of the conversations around gender equality, which... Uh, I remember when I was talking to you um, during your interview, you may not remember, but you talked about the pay gap mm. um, as a policy issue that needs to be um, addressed um, in in terms of gender equality. I, I know that's not where you all landed with this conversation, but Sydney, tell us what it was like or tell us what sort of issues came up in the gender equality circle and what were the pain points <laughs> in those conversations. I'm sure there were many. Well, I, I think it's a really interesting moment for these conversations right now. And arguably, it should have always been an interesting moment for these conversations, but it's hit a bit of a tipping point um, with a lot of movements sprouting up across the world with Me Too, with Time's Up. 
um, that aren't just taking place here in the U.S., but that are really making waves throughout many communities um, in the G7 and outside. And so I think it was a really crucial moment to take a stand on sexual harassment in particular um, and other forms of abuse and, and thinking outside of typical conversations around gender equality and trying to be more inter- intersectional in those conversations, which I think there was a huge push for. And it's interesting, I think, that all policies need a strong focus on language and making sure language is inclusive. But I think particularly in this space, the wording was so critical Mm -hmm. to ensure that we weren't leaving out important groups, that all groups are important, and that making sure that we were inclusive of those voices and the different challenges that women face. Um, Because even if you just look at at the pay gap, um, while white women make less than white men, as you look at women of color, it gets even worse. And so I think that it was really important to have that that lens on and to recognize the different privileges that were present in that room and to be able to speak in a way that was um, all-encompassing. Yeah. So so certainly pay gap came up and I think because of the UK's leadership on on that with the recent legislation to require transparency around equal pay um, in, in the UK with corporations of a certain size and stature. Um, and I think there was certainly hope that some of that could infiltrate into the other G7 countries, yeah. um, as well as into into countries in, in the developing world. And I think too, there was conversations around education, both with sexual education and how there's really no strong standard there. Um, if anything, it's, it's quite regressive in most countries. And, and even just looking at, yeah, in a lot of developing countries, we've closed the gap with primary education with certain segments, um, but secondary education is still a hurdle. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you look beyond that, what does that look like for girls around the world? Right. Um, you mentioned all of the, the youth that are unemployed, looking at the number of children that are out of school. Um, it's quite quite terrible for, for young women around the world. So there was a medley of topics that were that were thrown out. And I think or the one we did um, ultimately decide to bring to the top of that discussion was around sexual harassment, just due to the moment that we're in right. and wanting to, to leverage that interest and um, to grow that conversation. And do you feel confident that the administration or and or the other G7 countries will land in a similar place when it comes to ge- to sexual harassment as you all framed it in your call to action? Do you feel confident or do you feel like we still have maybe a little bit ways to go? <laughs> Probably the latter. Okay. I like to consider myself an idealist. So I, I want to think that there's people working on these things at the highest levels of government in these countries and probably in some certainly more than others. Um, I do I think that we'll get a special representative in two years appointed to address all issues of sexual harassment across the G7 countries. I would like to. That's <laughs> something that you all propose. It's something that we certainly proposed and we would love to see implemented, even even if it's just the start of one, even if it's the bubbling of a conversation or um, bringing focus to the fact that this is something that should have a special advisor, that it's something that should be elevated to a level that's taken seriously, that it's not... Um, I think oftentimes gender equality is siloed off in in a, in many places, in government hallways, in nonprofit centers, in corporate institutions. There's always a diversity and inclusion section, and somehow 50% of the population lands there, which <laughs> makes no sense to me. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's starting to change. But I think that the hope behind this policy was really to show that, hey, do you think this is important? 
it's this is an issue that clearly has some traction right now and it should have happened a long time ago these discussions but we have this opportunity to really take hold and move forward with these conversations and it's something that we're prioritizing yeah so our hope is that that at least brings it to attention of people that can make those decisions um, and where it goes from there. Yeah, we'll see. Um, we'll stay tuned until June uh, <laughs> and see what what happens at the at the G7. If you had to talk to another another person who didn't have this opportunity, mm-hmm. why should a youth, a person who's 23 in Huntsville, Alabama, uh, you know, trying to finish up his or her degree um, or get their next job or figure out how to pay their student loan debt, right? Why should the youth of America care about what's happening here um, at the G7? Yeah, I, I think it's because it affects them. And that seems like the easiest possible answer. But but truly, these decisions, they're made at high levels, but they should be both top down and bottom up. And most importantly, they should they should be coming from these grassroots conversations that are happening across the country. Because as you mentioned, we're four people. We're four people of similar backgrounds and um, socioeconomic statuses. And I think that we certainly, I know that we certainly don't speak on behalf of the entire youth of right. the U.S. And there's so many issues that did not fall within these three pillars that I know are important. One that you touched on earlier, which is that debt burden that we all t- yeah. carry around from, from college. And um, one that I do think we certainly saw, we did consultations across the U.S. with different um, subgroups and were able to try to identify and highlight some of the concerns that they addressed. And one that I think came to the to the top often was this idea of climate change environment and how we feel like we're moving backwards on a lot of things that are very time sensitive. And there's great concern around what can we as youth do to fill some of the gaps that are being left at the high, highest levels of government. Yeah. Let's take just a quick second uh, on that note related to to climate change and love was the representative from the team. She could not be with us, but uh, here's her thoughts on climate change and why it matters to American youth uh, and what they landed on over there in, in Ottawa. In our environmental group, our main discussion was on decarbonization, waste management, the prevention of climate refugee crises, and the importance of water. We decided to focus on waters because it is currently a large topic that we believed is important to have a youth's voice. And in many areas, we're at a critical point where restoring the biodiversity may take generations or even become impossible. And we wanted to have a say to reverse these current trends. We realized one of the large issues currently facing our both our fresh and saltwater sources were microplastics, which are caused by everyday products and our pollution of our, our oceans. Because of this, we called upon the G7 nations to initiate an ambitious plan to quickly phase out the most harmful plastics. The policy recommendations will benefit American youth by protecting our oceans and water systems. People currently are consuming tens of thousands of microplastics, and the current research is indicating that the effects on people may be quite large. And though we do not currently know the full extent that they are harming humans, we do know that they are harming our food supplies, such as fish. When we consume the fish, we are consuming the microplastics. This policy recommendation is aimed to preserve the future of our waters, our food supplies, and human health. So, uh, Ryan, tell us, we just heard from from Anne, uh, tell us why 
the G7 matters to American youth. If you're out there in the world and you're you're in your your community just trying to deal with maybe issues of gun violence or police brutality or healthcare, why does this matter? Sure. So um, I would definitely agree with what Sydney said that these kind of big heady issues that are talked about at the G7 by our leaders really do have an effect and do trickle down. Um, we mentioned uh, student debt as a really pressing issue for young people. But I would also encourage young people to think about the issues a little farther down the horizon. Um, you know, especially in the future of work group, uh, retirement and retirement savings was really on my mind. And it's not just an issue for old people to think about or worry about. <laughs> AARP uh, would love you right now, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I did intern them for them in the past. So <laughs> they would also be happy. But um, it, it really is a, a pressing issue. Um, a lot of the research I looked at uh, ahead of the Y7, you know, was showing that in the U.S., um, a very small minority of workers actually save enough or even save at all <laughs> for retirement. And so even while we're, we're paying down this horrible debt burden, which also needs to be addressed, we also need to be thinking about how we're preparing for our futures, our financial futures, and how we're making ourselves secure for that future. Right. And were there examples? I don't know if you have any examples from other countries regarding this issue of, of retirement, because I think, again, like it's easy for us here in the United States to to think we're the only ones <laughs> dealing with these problems. And I, and I, rem- I recall you all saying that. These are things that other people in other countries are dealing with as well. So were there any examples um, either on either side of, of issues that other countries were dealing with as well that you were like, oh, man, you guys have that problem, too? <laughs> yeah, I mean, certainly on the retirement front, the U.S. and the United Kingdom's systems are very similar. And so we face a lot of the same challenges about saving for retirement. Um, other countries in Europe uh, have slightly stronger safety nets. So France, Italy, um, it's not as big a concern for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly, um, I think we all face challenges around gender inequality and making sure that more women are getting into the workforce and reaching um, higher positions at a lot of these companies that have shut women out for too long. Um, and those are a couple examples. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Ryan, uh, thank you for, for sharing the, the that glimpse into what other countries are dealing with in Sydney as well. Thank you for leading up this group. Um, definitely want to keep in touch with you all. And if you are listening to the show, you can actually find the call to action, which is the Y7 Summit's version of the communique uh, that outlines their recommendations on those three policy issues uh, to the G7 and what they think will benefit not just youth in America, but youth around the world. So the two of you, I want to thank you again for for sharing your time with us and for representing youth voices in such a classy, awesome, dope way. <laughs> and, My pleasure. <laughs> uh, yeah. And um, I, I feel hopeful about the future of American foreign policy because of y'all. And, and I think others feel the same way about what you've done and that, you know, we're, we're in good hands in the future. Uh, before we, we go to the song, you can listen to What in the World online at WERA.com. FM and also find us on SoundCloud, on iTunes, on Twitter, 
and on Facebook um, under What in the World Podcast. And you can send me your questions if you have any for um, either Sydney or Ryan about the G7 or if you just want to share your thoughts about the G7 coming up or just in general, what's happening, what in the world is happening out there and and what does it mean to you? Why does it matter to you? And um, again, I think Sydney and I know Sydney and Ryan did an amazing job, I think, explaining why this stuff actually, actually matters. It's not just a big old party out in Canada, right? <laughs> <laughs> so in, in true fashion, we end this show on a positive note, uh, you know, because foreign policy can be heavy <laughs> and, and depressing. This wasn't too depressing, though. This was actually an uplifting conversation. So this group uh, was tasked with identifying a song or that puts them in a good mood. So, so Ryan, what was, what was the song and why did you, why did, what, why does this song represent the team? Send Me On My Way by Rusted Root. It's just a great, uh, kind of, um, good old folksy American song, (laughs) uh, that also at least makes me feel, um, ready to tackle the next challenge and to be thinking about what I got to do next. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. And I also want to send a special thank you to the young professionals in foreign policy for allowing me to speak with our delegate about these very important issues. And you can find them online at ypfp.org. So thank you both again. Thank you. Well, I would like to hold my little hand. I would like to hold Send me on my way.